We've all heard the joke. Uh, it was a very brave person who ate the first oyster. I have to imagine it was also the very, a very, very brave person decided to become a surgeon. Uh, <laughs> can you imagine saying, no, 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 no. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take this knife and I'm going to slice this person open. I, yeah, don't worry. I know they're dying and chances are they're going to die anyway. But I'm just going to slice them open and do some stuff, which is too complicated to explain to you. And stitch them back up and you're going to pay me. And uh, whatever the outcome is, eh, whatever. That's a, that's a gutsy move. That is a, that is a gutsy request. And for a long time, surgeons were effectively, I mean, you, what we all know, Sweeney Todd, the, 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 the barber, um, the murderer barber, the, the idea of the barbers and surgeons were almost the same, right? They were, they were there to, to remove things from bodies and they dealt in blood and razors and all that good stuff like that. Really gross stuff, obviously. Um, you, <laughs> the level of surgery as far back as, or as recently as um, Civil War was effectively here, bite on this while I chop this off with a saw. Um, surgeons were known for their speed of hand and their ability to take limbs off in the, in the space of eight to 10 seconds. That was usually considered a very good time, which is impressive because you're using a 1860s level saw to go through bone, which is pretty cool. So have I grossed you out yet? Don't worry, we're gonna be done with the gross stuff. I just bring this up because how do you get better at surgery? How, how do you get better at surgery? How do you say, how do you, how do you test? I wonder if this will work. Oh, he died. Wah, wah. No, I, isn't that how medicine works? Isn't that how surgery, surgical procedures are invented? We go, I think this might work. Let's try it. Oh crap, they're dead. Or oh crap, they're not dead. And if they're not dead, maybe it was what I did and maybe it's not. But honestly, if I'm gonna get sued to the into the Stone Age for trying something that I've never done 17 times before and has proven to work, maybe I just won't ever try anything new ever again. Thus, we have in the beginning of the 19, 1900s the concept of evaluating surgeons and surgeries to say what went wrong. Even if you aren't trying anything new, let's start to knock out errors. Oh, turns out someone forgot to wash their hands, which was not an uncommon occurrence, even as far as, as not very far back as a hundred years ago. Uh, maybe the instruments were not clean. Maybe someone gave them the wrong drugs. Maybe someone gave them the wrong anesthesia. Maybe someone gave them too much anesthesia. Maybe the nurse handed the wrong thing to the wrong person at the wrong time. Maybe the wrong person got wheeled into the hospital, which sounds crazy, and yet you hear all sorts of crazy stories about how even today the people are having the wrong surgeries. They go in to have something taken off their leg. They come out without a hand. It's just crazy, you know? How did we get better at this? How is it possible that anyone could get better at this? The cards seem stacked against surgeons, right? You're gonna get sued, people are gonna die, the systems they're working on, the human systems are so complicated, it's not always obvious what failed. There's so many people working on a body, on, on, on a surgery, there's so many people involved in it inside and outside the, the hospital, inside and outside this, the, the surgical theater, as it were. How could you possibly know what went wrong? So I want to talk about for a second, I'm pulling up the name because I want to make sure I get this name right. It's a guy by the name of Ernest Codman, and this is again early 1900s, who said, hey, you have to evaluate surgeons. And what? And he was, of course, fired for that. Huh, sucker. But what happens is, is his ideas, and he really did bang a drum, and he came up with this idea that there needs to be a safe space in which surgeons can come together and, and, and medical professionals can come together and say, what the hell just happened? What went wrong? What went right, but what went wrong? And how do we make sure it never happens again? Now, surgeons and doctors are never going to say, yeah, what happened was I used the wrong 
thing. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. Have you figured that out? I should hope by now. That should be abundantly clear. But, oh, we, you, the wrong person got wheeled, and I had no way of knowing that I should not have been operating on that leg, but instead I should be taking out that person's appendix. I thought I was supposed to be removing a toe or something. I don't know. Um, no one's going to volunteer that they screwed up. This is, this is dangerous stuff. People died. You have to face a, a family and say, I'm sorry, we did all we could, except that may not be true. Um, but they're gone, and here's your bill. The chutzpah, right? So we invented this concept of a mortality morbidity conference, and that is currently modern-day instance of it. Every week, every hospital comes together, and they say, okay, let's talk about bad cases. Let's talk about adverse responses or adverse outcomes, which, of course, is code for dead. Um, Sometimes it's not always dead. Sometimes it's just, oh, wow, we left a pair of scissors in that dude. Whoops, we got to go in and get them. That's a bad thing. Who forgot to count the scissors? Um, you know, it's, it's just checking to see what went wrong. And until you have a legally protected safe space to say, you know what, I'm, 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 I'm to blame. That was me. I'm so sorry. Let's make sure that never happens again. And let's actually not just say, you know what, I'm going to try harder next time, but more in a, hey, let's build processes to ensure that never actually can happen again. Right? That's the power of mortality morbidity co uh, uh, conference. Yes, I think I may have flipped mortality morbidity. It might be morbidity mortality. I don't know. I'm not a surgeon, and I have gone five minutes on the history introduction. Let's talk about why hiring is so hard. Because, by the way, I get the sense that there's a lot of parallels between how surgery and surgeons and medicine is going and why we have such a huge problem hiring these days. So we'll be right back. Welcome to the Talent Cast, the world's most caffeinated employer brand and recruiting podcast. I'm your host, James Ellis. Thanks so much for listening. If this is your first time for joining in, we do things a little differently. We try and do deep dives. There's not a lot of interviews here. There's not a lot of news here. This is about how do we get smarter and better. And that means how do I get you smarter and better? How do I get you to think about these problems at a deeper level so that you can solve them and look like a genius to your boss? If this isn't the first time you've been here, thanks so much for returning. Feel free to share with your friends, your coworkers, your boss. I don't know. Uh, we really do appreciate that. All right, let's get into it. Hey, how you doing? James Ellis. So I want to first give a shout out to what I presume to be my youngest fan. I'm presuming because if there's anybody younger who's a big fan of what I'm doing, should speak up. I don't know why. I'm not making any money off you. The youth market on this thing is very thin. But 10-year-old Connor, hi, how you doing? Thanks so much for listening. Um, for those of you thinking I am full of it, well, I am, but that's not that's not about this. Uh, his mother listens to uh, the podcast in the car, and he has become something of a fan, and he hopefully appreciates this little shout-out. But also, not only am I shouting him out because he's my youngest fan, he came up with today's topic about why is hiring so hard. So, Connor, this one is for you. Your mom's fairly cool, which, you know, you probably don't even understand at all, but it's true. Other housekeeping, I'm doing a lot of speaking this summer. Obviously, I'm doing Transform. I'm doing RecFest in London. Come see me. I've programmed my uh, Amazon Echo bot to speak to me and respond to questions in a British accent. It's very posh. So I'm going to be really, I'm going to feel really at home at RecFest in London. Yes, no, okay, yeah, so transform, I'm doing a WRA thing in, in uh, Iowa, I'm doing, uh, there's stuff, there's stuff, there's house, you know, go to the website, go look at the show notes, you can see where I am, I'd love to come, I'd love to see you, if any time, this is a standing open, standing thing right now, if you see me at an event, you say hello and ask for a sticker, guess what, I have a talent cast sticker for you, isn't that nice of me, I thought so. Other uh, housekeeping news, I don't know, I'm just keeping busy, I'm doing lots of stuff, so let's dive right back into it, so 
why is hiring so hard? And I come back to the surgery thing because think about how complex the concept of having a successful surgery, even in the modern era, and an, an, an era of lasers and remote telemedicine and AI that actually spot where the clot is better and faster than a doctor can in a lot of cases, or you know, the ability not just to see through bodies, but to see just a little through a body, see what you're about to cut into. To, uh, just the medicines, the pharmaceutical side, the, the equipment side, all the stuff, the number of people, the anesthesiologists, the nurses, the prep nurses, the out, output, out, output? That's not right. Out, outtake nurses, I guess. Um, the, the people cutting you open, the people holding you open, the people doing all, there's so many bodies and systems and processes to make it through a successful, even a simple surgery. And by the way, if you look at all the processes in any given hospital, you'll find no hospital actually does all the processes really, really well. Every hospital is failing, you know, maybe not failing, but certainly could do a lot better on certain things. Let's remember, this is an industry that not 100 years ago was going, yeah, I'm not going to wash my hands. I'm cool with that. No, 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 that's cool. Now I'm gonna put the icky stuff from this person, I'm gonna put it in that person. That's okay. What could go wrong, right? That's, we think about medicine as being incredibly advanced because on the cutting edge, it's insanely advanced. But however, the day-to-day -day is, oh, oh crap, I put the wrong person in the wrong room. The, my, there, you hear horror stories and if you go online, you see people who say things like, if you're gonna have surgery on a leg, on your other leg, right, do not cut this leg, other leg, right? That level of just, Dude, keep it simple because surgeons are not geniuses necessarily. They're mechanics. They're there to wheel you in, cut you open, pull out the wrong valve, put in the right valve, wheel you back out, and then charge you for it, right? Well, more likely charge insurance. That's what they do. But it's such a complicated system. Now, see the parallels between what a surgeon does or a medical set of medical professionals does and a recruiter does. Now, let's take the system of hiring. And I've been talking about the system of hiring lately because one of my first slides on a lot of presentations I'm doing is this idea that a that optimizing a subsystem actually disoptimizes a larger system. That is to say, in a surgical space, if the anesthesiologist does a too good of job, in fact, if they're too good at keeping the patient under, that actually can harm the patient. That can actually make it very hard for the doctor to notice reactions in the body and the person may die on the table because the anesthesiologist actually did too good a job of keeping that person stable and under. They didn't, there was no kind of reference check or no kind of signals or signs that there was something going wrong. The same way happens in recruiting. If your job is to source and you are optimizing your sourcing position to say, okay, my job is to bring in qualified leads as fast as humanly possible, and I flood the funnel and with great people, and now the recruiters has too many people to go through, and the hiring managers are like, I don't know who to choose. You've given me too many people. Now there's too much stuff going on. You've actually slowed down the system. You've optimized a piece, but you've unoptimized the whole system. And that begs this idea of do we think about hiring as a system enough? Because when it comes to the answering the question of why hiring is so hard, the answer is because it's a system and we don't treat it like a system. We treat it as the sorcerer's job is to pull bodies in. The recruiter's job is to filter, sort, and present those 
those bodies to a hiring manager. The hiring manager's job is to evaluate those people, make a choice. Comp and Ben and HRBP are there to make sure that there's no outstanding or weird kind of anomalies in compensation leveling, that you need that person, et cetera, et cetera. The recruiter is then usually tasked with managing the process of putting the offer out there on the table and negotiating, for the most part, the process until they say yes. Now, even when they say yes, they can still ghost on you. This is 2019, after all. And once they decide to say yes, how do you who who makes sure that person shows up other than the hiring manager? So you can see how this ping pong ball is bouncing from team to team, role to role, person to person, all around. And I ask you, sure, the sorcerer's in charge of making sure there are enough bodies in, in, in place in the funnel. The recruiter's in charge of making sure good people are being selected and bad people are being filtered out. The hiring manager is in charge of making sure somebody is chosen or meets a certain threshold of quality, and the recruiter's job is there to make sure that that person is accepted. That sounds, sounds like every day, right? That sounds like our world. Now, let's create that parallel. In a surgical room and someone dies, Everybody comes together and says, okay, what happened? And in fact, in a mortality morbidity conference, they literally don't, they don't just bring the surgeons in. They bring all the related and impacted doctors, nurses, and medical professionals. So the person who was dealing the drug and set up the drug in the, the, for the surgery uh, in process to do whatever, and they did a poor job, and somebody think, I think the problem was there was too much or too little or the wrong drug on, on hand ready to go, they bring that person in for the mortality morbidity conference. They don't fire the person, but they have to say, look, we need to identify the problem to make sure this problem never happens again. So I ask you, how often do you look at your recruiting system and say, okay, if we treat a rejected offer as a patient death, if we saw that as the adverse outcome we are trying to avoid, we know that we're, hiring, we're bringing in good people. We know we're finding good people. We know we're pitching them something semi-compelling, compelling enough to at least spend time with us and maybe even waste time with us and take time off out of their day to hang out with us and do the work and do the interview process and all that good stuff. We know the hiring manager said this person is quality enough to show up. Comp and Ben said we understand what the average salary in this space is and what should be an acceptable level. And you recruiter takes all that information, walks it to the candidate and says, do you want this job at this level? And even after a little negotiation, the candidate says, you know what, I'm not going to do it. I want you to treat that like a death on a table, like a death in the surgery theater. Why? Well, because that is the most amount of work you and your team can do to achieve nothing. That is, to me, the adverse outcome we should be designing a system to avoid. When you say to yourself, well, God, James, come on. Yeah, you know what? Some people just want, got it, had a better job offer someplace else. Did you know about the job offer in the process? Did you ask about the job offer in the process? Did you vet that person to see who else they were talking to? Did you talk to Comp and Ben to say, did if, if, if this person is also talking to company A, B, and C, do we have any sense of how they pay relative to the market? At no point should you, I mean, we, we, we live in a world in which we are almost comfortable with a 40% acceptance rate. That is to say, the person spent hours with you. They listened to you. They talked to you. They asked you questions. You asked them questions. You had good banter. You learned about each other. And you decided they were a great candidate and they said no. You were literally saying, here is a pile of money. Here, take it. And they said no? Yeah, I think treating that like a death on a table sounds about right. And the trick is 
if we look at this and say, oh, well, gosh, recruiter person who was handling negotiations, why didn't you know they were also talking to those other companies? Well, I thought that was the hiring manager's job or the sourcer's job or some other recruiter's job or somebody else was going to take care of that. My job was to evaluate them to make sure they were good enough to present to a hiring manager, and then my job was to handle the negotiation. Okay, so whose job was it? I don't know. Well, it fell through the cracks. Now, again, think back 100 years ago before you had the M&M conferences where people would die on the table and they go, well, it was somebody else's fault. And maybe they'd talk about you on the back and go, oh, that nurse screwed up. Or it was your fault, but you decided I'm going to throw the nurse under the bus because let's be fair, that's how people work. Um, but because there was no kind of coming together in a safe space to decide what is the problem, it was all backstabby and chitter chatter and BS like that, right? When you think about what it takes and all the money and all the resources it takes to bring someone in, someone who is qualified, someone who can help move the needle on your company to drive it in the right direction, to add value beyond their salary, which let's be fair, is the initial value of bringing a new body on, right? If you're going to pay that person $50,000, they better bring in $70,000 of value. Just how the world works. In fact, it should be a lot more, but whatever. That's neither here nor there. If you get someone who spends all that time with you, who learns about you, who is willing to be open with you, who gives you personal references, who talks about their personal history, gives you their social security number, gives you their date of birth, gives you, heck, I think at some point they probably, you probably, they probably give you their mother maiden name, right? You are, these people are giving you the keys to the castle. They're giving you everything it takes. Are they doing so in the opportunity to get an offer? Okay, maybe in a handful of instances that's true. But if we assume the process is driving the machine, that is to say, first the sourcer, then the recruiter, then the hire manager, then the recruiter, that process is perfected somehow, I don't think it is. I think there are lots of gaps. I think there's a lot of gaps. I think whoever writes the job posting and the job descriptions, and yes, they're different. Yes, I know that. Whoever's writing them, are you writing them in such a way that you're attracting the right people? Are you writing job postings that are that have 14,000 bullets and are scaring the crap out of good qualified candidates? Because they just like, I don't also have a plumbing degree. Who has a plumbing degree? Right? We've all seen the joke, this person wants eight years of, of, of this particular coding experience, coding language, and that's a coding language that's only existed for three years. You're like, look give me a break. How can you have that a requirement? And then someone sees it, someone who's great at it, sees it and goes, yeah, eight years. Okay, you are clearly, you don't know what you're doing. And they walk away. Who's responsible for making sure the job posting is there? Who's responsible for making sure the job posting aligns to the expectation of both the recruiter and the hiring manager? Who's responsible? I ask you, and I'll wait for an answer because I know the answer in all of yours cases is no one. No one is responsible. Even in, people, even in companies where someone is designated as the person who writes the job description or the job posting, who is responsible for making sure that it aligns with the job and the hiring manager's expectations, that the hiring manager didn't say, yeah, yeah, use the one off the shelf, that's fine, but then they start asking other questions or have other experience, other expectations about experiences and skills. Who makes sure those dots are connected? Again, I'm really confident the answer is nobody. Or it's an ad hoc system where someone complains enough that you're like, okay, we better fix this. We better get into this. Enough people have died on this person's watch to at least make this something worth talking about. Recruiting and hiring, more hiring than recruiting. Hiring is a system, much in the same way medicine is. 
Do you know that when a pilot has a near-miss incident, that is to say, they got real close to doing to having a something horrible happen to them, and, but they figured it out. You know, they got within a couple hundred feet of another plane, and they went, "Oh crap, we got to pull the stick up a little bit and get away from this other plane." Or the recent occurrence where the plane was landing on a runway where someone else was trying to take off. <laughs> Yikes! Um, do you know that if the pilot reports that incident to the FAA in a certain amount of time, they are immune to prosecution. Why? Because if you want to solve problems, you have to identify when problems happen. If in, a, in, in pilot school or, FAA or you know, in airline stuff, if the only time you ever investigate problems are when, people, when planes crash and people die, well, gosh. <laughs> You're not going to get enough data to actually decide, you know what, we need to make sure that this switch is checked every single time or every X number of hours, or we have to make sure that someone does a walk around. I've got, I'm reading a book with my four-year-old, four-and-a-half, soon-to-be four-and-a-half-year-old, about how airports and airplanes work. She's just fascinated. She just got back from uh, her parent, her grandmother's house in Houston, and so she loves going to airports and planes, and I'm like, just you wait, kid. But she's fascinated by it, and it's interesting. There's a whole spread on all the different processes and systems that go into, into checking an aircraft. They have certain amount of checks that happen every touchdown and every takeoff. They have certain checks that happen every X number of hours. They have certain checks every X number of flight hours, and they do a full and complete teardown every X number of months. They have this down to a science. They know that piece X is designed to, to be fine for X number of hours, and then it, its likelihood of failure exponentially increases. And they know that and because they've studied it, and they learned, okay, after those many hours, replace that part. Test it and replace it. That is system thinking. They evaluated data across all the different pieces. Think, you know, even if you're flying a Boeing or an Airbus plane, think of all the different parts and all the different companies who made all the various parts included. There's so many systems within an airplane, let alone the airport and the, the pilots and the, the airliner and the air, air you know, the air, um, the companies, right? The United, the Americans, the Southwest, what have you, the JetBlues. All these different people have an impact on the system, and if nobody's in charge of making sure that each piece has a set number, a set rotation, it doesn't get rotated out, and it fails, and people die. But if you say you're allowed to self-report issues without fear of reprisals, but we get to investigate and figure out how the hell to make sure this never happens again, that's how you change a system. So I wonder, how many of you, when you're starting to see a spike in numbers of offers declined, again, dead, dead people on tables, investigate? And when you investigate, how many of you just throw salespeople at it? Say, okay, we need some sales training. Not that sales training is a bad idea, but let's be fair. Sales training is a function of how do I per pressure and persuade someone to make the choice I want them to make. If recruiting and sourcing and hiring managers have done all of their jobs properly. By the time you extend an offer to someone, they should be in love with the brand and the opportunity. That's what your job is. Your job isn't to make them, get them to make a choice, choose this company or our company. The job is to make them understand what makes you special and unique and the kind of offer you're actually extending them. This is a place where you're going to get lots of training. This is a place where you're going to get lots of stability. This is the place where you're going to get lots of blah, 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 blah. And that's a thing you want. And they say, I want more of that. Great. Let's keep talking about that. That should be your interview process, right? 
So by the time you extend an offer, you're not just saying, here's your new salary, and here's the benefits package that goes along with it, and maybe there's a bonus system if you're lucky, but about saying, look, we know what you really want is a chance to develop your skills and show people what you can do. And along with the salary and benefits package and the bonus structure, we are committing to make sure you are being developed and pushed to achieve the most you can at every single day. How is that how an offer happens at your company? Because it's not how I've ever had offers extended to me, never in a million years. But I know that if you knew me and you extended an offer like that, I'd be like, uh-huh, okay, but you didn't even look at the number, sir. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. I just want that. I have fallen in love with this opportunity. That's our jobs. But, who, so, but it's the system's jobs to make sure that that candidate is in love with the brand. The system's job is ensure, to make sure by the time the offer is extended, the person has already decided, yes, I want to do this. Or if they already said no, they managed to walk out in the process before the offer got extended. Right? To think that someone is just bored and just runs through interviews and spends time and takes time off their busy day and maybe even travels a little bit to talk to you and your hiring managers and see your wonderful office, I guess. To think that that's a hobby that they just, and they say no to these things and there's, no, there's nothing we can do. They said no. There's nothing they can do. This other company swooped in and made them a better offer. Better money? Or do they fall more in love with the brand? Because you should have spent the last four hours making them fall in love. And by you, I mean all of you. Hiring managers, interview loop, recruiters, sourcers, the person who walked them around in the office tour, the junior recruiter who's training, who did the office tour, the facilities person who makes sure the office is clean, the leadership who says, Hiring is our number one priority, so we should make sure it has all the tools and resources it needs to do it right. We should make sure there's collateral and or swag and or reasons and or stories and or marketing materials that tell people when we say this is a place that guarantees stability and we're all about stability, here's a hundred different stories to show that fact, to prove that fact. Because if you're attracted by stability, boy, have we got the opportunity for you. I've told the story about SAS before, about the company in North Carolina. In 1998-99, they were famous for treating their people great. Great. On-site healthcare, on-site childcare, food, gym. They did your laundry for you for your gym clothes. If you stitched their, your name on, they would fold it and put it back in your locker, all that good stuff. And then if you said, that sounds like a great company to work, what's the salary like? I would again then say, and I think I'm pretty sure I've said this joke even on this podcast, you've missed the point. We're going to assume that person, that company is offering a midpoint salary, but why you show up is the why you take the job. And the why you take the job is beyond the salary. Do you think people fall in love for $5,000 more? If you're getting people to choose between two jobs and one has a salary that's $5,000 more, and that becomes the criteria by which they judge, they see your jobs and your opportunities as commodities. Oops. Are you a commodity? Are you a cog in a machine? I'm pretty sure you're not. If you've spent any time listening to this podcast, I'm pretty sure you reject the concept altogether, as you should. And yet, the more we say and treat jobs as salaries with titles, and we compare two jobs as two different salaries with two different titles, 
We are saying, I'm going to fall in love with person A or person B. I'm going to marry person A or person B based on their height, based on the color of their hair, based on their potential earnings down the road. If you're a woman, based on their height and whether they're likely to keep their hair. And as speaking as a guy for whom who loses that fight pretty often, people fall in love and can fall in love with even the, the baldest of dudes because it's not about the hair. It's not about the money. It's about love. It's about connection. It's about understanding. It's about teamwork. It's about all the other stuff. And the salary is just a number at the end of it. As long as they can pay their mortgage and pay their rent and pay their bills and make sure their kid goes to school and they're saving a couple of bucks in the, the savings account to do whatever it is they want to do, an extra five grand should not change love. So who's responsible? The medical community has kind of started to figure, not started, but they've done a great job trying their best to understand that medicine is a system. Now, they still fail on a lot of levels because hospitals as a system don't do a great job. They do a great job when it comes to M&M conferences and they, they discuss and they understand the failure on the point of that one instance. Bob lost a leg because of what we did. Okay, why did we? Why did that happen? Let's figure, let's figure it out. Let's figure out fixes that ensure that no matter how hard we try, nobody loses a leg by accident ever again. Hospitals can do this by adopting checklist models. And by the way, if you haven't read Atul Gawande's book on checklists, do so. I think it's called The Checklist Manifesto. He, by the way, is a surgeon and a fantastic writer and a super smart systems thinker. And he would even say that today, most hospitals do not embrace checklist models, even though there's a proven, the data proves that if you adopt a checklist model, here are all the things you have to do before each step. Here are all the things that have to happen before you wheel someone to surgery. Every time you do a bed check, you have to do this, 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 this. Every time you inject someone, you have to do this and this and then this. The things that every nurse and doctor think they do already, turns out they don't every single time, not 100, with 100% reliability. Turns out adopting a checklist saves 100,000 people, 100,000 lives every year. Because that's, you've all heard the numbers of, you know, infection and, and complications, and they're all because tiny little problems, tiny, 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 tiny little things get missed. Things that the doctor is sure they're doing right. Things that the nurse is sure she did every single time, but you can prove, no, you didn't. You couldn't have. Now, we're not blaming you, but hey, if you had a checklist and we had a culture that says everybody has to abide by the checklist, 100,000 lives every year get saved. So the medical community isn't some sort of paragon of virtue when it comes to managing systems in this way, but frankly, the surgeons and the doctors in this space can certainly be used as a pretty good bar to be reaching for, especially in recruiting where we don't do any of this stuff, at least not that I've ever heard. Heck, I think it's surprising. I don't understand why recruiters don't hang out together once a month and trade in-mails, right? And say what worked, what didn't work. Trade job postings, trade outreach emails, trade tricks and success stories that happen so infrequently it boggles my mind. You're not lawyers or sharks in a tank. You're recruiters. You should be helping each other. Turns out the system, if you manage the system properly... You have outsized outcomes relative to changing the recruiters. If you take a bunch of, let's call them for lack of a better word, and I'm not judging anybody here, B-level recruiters, B and B-plus recruiters, no A, A-minus, A-plusers, right? These are good but not exceptional recruiters. If you change the system, I would lay 
whatever money I have in my pocket, that changing the system and having them run through checklists, understanding system processes, running uh, you know the equivalent of mortality conferences, and figuring out where the problems are and solving system design solves for those problems to make sure they never happen again, I would put that team of B plus B B recruiters with a great system up against the same team of A plus recruiters without a system. I feel really confident to put my money on the table on that one. So when you think, how do I hire better? The answer isn't, I gotta go find more recruiters or better recruiters. The answer might be in the system. The reason hiring is so hard is because hiring itself is a very, very, very complicated system. And we don't treat it like a system. And we need to. So that one's out to Connor. Thanks so much for listening. As per usual, I would absolutely adore it if you gave this a review, if you shared it with someone. Um, obviously, I'm not making any bank on this, so I just do it for the sheer love of doing it. So the more people who get a chance to see, hear this and, and can connect with this, I, I'm thrilled with. I hope I'm trying to make an impact. And you all know by, by now my mission is to change recruiting and hiring for the better to get us all to the next level. So I'm just here to share my thoughts on how we can all do better. So keep sharing that. Keep sending questions my way. Um, don't let the 10-year-old be in charge of this thing because you know the next question will be about Fortnite. You know it will, and I don't know anything about Fortnite. That's a bad idea. So send me questions. Send me uh, suggestions or situations you want me to cover. Can't wait to talk to you. And oh yeah, by the way, how did I miss this? Hey, we had Tracy Parsons on last week. That was fantastic. I hope you had half as much fun as I did because that way I have twice as much fun as you and that puts me in the driver's seat. But you get that, right? If you liked when I bring in a guest and I've got a couple more I'm lining up as we speak, I want to do a couple more just as a pilot to see how this works. If you thought that was a great conversation, you'd like to hear more of them, tell me. If you think that was a complete and total waste of time and you don't understand why I would ever anyone would ever talk to me, well, tell me that too. Um, but I'm going to try this a couple times. I'm going to see how this works. I would love to kind of integrate more voices into this just to kind of keep the conversation going. At some point, you will get sick of me. Lord knows I do too. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for sharing. And thanks so much for talking to me. Keep the revolution going. I will talk to you all next week. Bye. Well, the music means you've made it to the end of another episode of the Talent Cast. If this was useful to you, do not keep it a secret. Share it with your team. Share it with your boss. Share it with your networks. I don't know. Share it with your mom. Uh, if you have questions you'd like me to answer on a future show or just, you know, general ideas about how to make this thing better, just ping me on Twitter. You know, I'm at the War for Talent. At the War for Talent. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Do you love news about LinkedIn, Indeed, Google, and just about every other recruitment tech company out there? Hell yeah. I'm Chad. I'm Cheese. We're the Chad and Cheese Podcast. All the latest recruiting news and insights are on our show. Dripping in snark and attitude. Subscribe today wherever you listen to your podcasts. We, we out. out.